0: This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, howdy, Bridgeway. It is great to see you here today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Ron. Super excited you're here today. As you've already heard a couple of times, we are studying the great book of Galatians, looking at our series, No Other Gospel. I'll kind of tell you right at the beginning uh, my hope in this series is that you would know the one true gospel. And then have the discernment to be able to reject all other forms, false gospels, fake counterfeit gospels, because those are the ones that will lead you astray. And today we're talking about fighting for the gospel. I actually want to talk this morning about a topic I don't think I rarely ever hear in the church today, and it's how to defend, how to fight for the gospel, now, I'll just tell you, I think in a lot of circles, this type of a message kind of gets looked at poorly because Christians kind of have this thinking that, well, you know. I'm supposed to have my private Christian faith. In fact, Jesus was meek and mild, and so I'm supposed to be too, right? We um, kind of have this thought that you know Jesus didn't involve himself with with problems and issues and the debates of his day, so I'm not going to either. In fact, I'll just kind of keep quiet. Maybe I'll pass out some Bibles, drink chai tea, sing "Shine, Jesus, Shine." In fact, you even have denominations that sort of steer away from debates and hot topics. You have congregations like the Quakers and the Mennonites, brethren-type groups that more or less kind of take more of a, a passive approach to engagement with the world. And the truth is, when you look at Jesus, he certainly was meek, but meekness is not weakness. In fact, Jesus never shied away from a debate or taking a stance, even on a hot topic. So, this is where we're going today. I'm saying to you this morning, I want to be really clear, that as Christians, we aren't out there looking for the fight, but we also shouldn't be losing the fight. I'm not talking about being a bully, but just having the reality as a follower of Christ that truth is at war in our culture today. I'll give you just a little bit of my background this morning. In fact, uh, when I was a kid growing up, I found myself very interested in the sport of boxing. I don't know what it was, but as a kid growing up, I guess boxing sort of is the way MMA is today. And there was one boxer that kind of took the world by storm, Mike Tyson. Now, again, I'll be really clear from the stage before I get emails from some people. I'm not condoning the lifestyle of Mike Tyson outside of the ring. Heck, even inside of the ring, he bit a guy's ear off, right? Um, but you cannot deny that as a boxer, Tyson was a force to be reckoned with. He was relentless, intimidating, and he was kind of a no-frills guy. Remember um, in that day, boxers would come out, you know, satin robes. Not Tyson. He'd have like a, he had like a white towel with like a hole cut in the middle. He'd have that over his shoulders, and that would be it. And he was, at this point in his career, kind of just on a tear. Uh, one fight in particular really stands out to me, and it was this fight against Marvis Frazier. It was July 26, 1986. Now, Marvis Frazier is the son of the legendary boxer Joe Frazier, who beat Muhammad Ali on one occasion. They had three fights, the Thrilla in Manila. I told you, I was a bit of a nerd on the whole boxing set. I just loved boxing as a kid. Um, but Marvis Frazier didn't fare so well. In fact, Tyson came into the ring. He was on this incredible win streak, unbeaten. I think he'd won like 24 in a row, never had to go out of the first round. And I sat down. It was at 2.30. This was back before pay-per-view got a hold of of, uh, boxing. And the fight was at 2.30 in the afternoon. I sat down with a can of Coke and a bag of chips. Let's rumble, right? And uh, my dad was sitting next to me. He says, hey, before the fight, go take the dog out. And I look at my dad like, really? Take the dog? I've got sisters. Can't they do this? And of course, no, take the dog out real quick. And I'm the oldest child, so responsible in every way. I take the dog out. Dog does his business. I come back inside, and my dad's getting up off the couch. Tyson's hand's being raised in the air. I'm like, what happened? My dad's like, "I knocked him out. Turns out, like, in 30 seconds, Tyson knocked this guy out. It was his fastest knockout in his entire career. And the fight was over before it even began. Now, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Galatians, Ron? Defending the gospel Though it looks very differently than how maybe a fight in a ring would look, it requires a lot of the same components. And this morning, I'm going to tell you that in some ways, as Christians, we need to step into the ring more often. And not with weakness, but with a strong sense of what the gospel means and how to defend it. In fact, um, one other verse uh, kind of related to what we're going to read today, written by the same author. Uh, wrote another letter, actually two of them, to the church in Corinth. And I want you to see the language that this author uses. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Kind of catch the language here. It's not weak. It's not even meek. It's this language of stepping into the ring. For the sake of obedience to Christ, we're going to take captive our thoughts and we're going to demolish arguments, arguments that set themselves up against Jesus and the gospel. That word demolish means literally destroy or take down. Or maybe for today's message, what I want you to think of is at times we need to step into the ring and actually be ready to give a knockout punch in defense of the gospel. I'll explain what that means. And to do that, we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to read these words um, in the Bible yourself this morning. I think that would be very helpful. All the words would be on the screen as well. Um, and so if you've got one, you can go ahead and turn there now. I'll give you a little bit of background. I said this verse from uh, 2 Corinthians and this book of Galatians were all written by the same guy. His name is Paul. And he's going to deliver this knockout punch, not just once in chapter 2, but actually he's going to step in the ring twice and have to deliver the same knockout punch. If you were here last week, we looked at Paul, and I gave you some of the background on this guy's life, and it's quite incredible. Um, Paul is actually known as Saul at one point, and when he's known as Saul, he's kind of going around and he's persecuting Christians. And he has this dramatic change where he goes from persecutor, murderer of Christians, to actually turning his life for Jesus and becoming a defender, a protector, a shepherd of Christians. It's crazy. It's wild, the turnaround that God does in his life. And I'll add this week that Saul, who becomes Paul, is kind of a strange bird. I mean, he's literally, he's a different guy. In fact, um, he has a very different upbringing. Um, He is both a Roman citizen, likely from his father's side. Some actually think that his dad was a Roman uh, general. But also from his mother's side, he was uh, a Jew. And so he was trained in Judaism. It'd be kind of like today if you had passports from two different countries. That's kind of how unique Paul is in this scenario. And his passport, his Roman citizenship, uh, would give him an audience among the Gentiles. And at the same time, his training in Judaism would give him an audience with the Jews. In fact, if you were here last week, we learned that he was trained under probably the most well-known scholar of his day, the Rabbi Gamaliel. This would have been um, kind of the equivalent in that day of having a Harvard education. Got him in a lot of doors, made him very easy to recognize. But he used one word to describe himself last week. He, He referred to himself as zealous. And... Zeal isn't always a good thing, and it wasn't for this man. In fact, his zeal was he felt that he needed to do everything he could to defend Judaism. He was trained that way, and anytime he saw something that looked like it competed against Judaism, he would stomp it out. And when Christianity comes onto the scene and people saying there is a Savior, there is a way, and it's in Christ Jesus, Paul just kind of flips his lid and he starts persecuting killing these christians he's at a point in his life where he's moving from one town to the next and that's when god gets a hold of him god speaks from heaven in an audible voice he has kind of a date set on the calendar calls him out shines this light down literally knocks paul off of his high horse to the ground and he's blinded for three days it's in that time when he makes the decision because you're free to change he makes this decision to turn his life over to jesus christ And when he does, he becomes this force for good, this heavyweight boxer for Jesus. Kind of fascinating. Um, He was so filled with violence in his old way of life, and he abandons it completely. And now you see that when he steps in the ring, it's not to fight. It's not to put on the gloves. His tactics are going to be, his weapons are going to be his mind and his words. So Galatians chapter 2, we're going to kind of read through sort of the highlights of this chapter Starting in verse 1. He says, Then after 14 years, I, being Paul, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I would call this his first time, his first bout in stepping into the ring, and this time He's got to deal with these false believers, these false teachers. He calls them spies. He says that they've infiltrated kind of the teaching in the church, and they're teaching this false gospel. Now, it gives you a bit of history. This didn't happen just in a moment. He said that it was 14 years after he'd been saved, that he goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been sort of the headquarters for the church, Uh, to reach out and evangelize in the early church. Um, If you remember last week, Paul was hesitant to go to Jerusalem at first. He didn't want to go up there right away. Instead, he went to Arabia, the desert. And in the desert, God really formed in him kind of this idea of what the gospel is. Now, fast forward 14 years, and he says, now I went up to Jerusalem, and I went there to see the leaders, those who were esteemed in the church, so that I could present to them the gospel that I preach. He's sort of like, hey, I want to just double check. This is what I believe is the gospel. I want to check it with the church and the believers and make sure that we're in sync. And he gets there, and it's been three years. He's been formed in this gospel. And he finds that in Jerusalem, some things aren't aren't exactly the way uh, that they should be. And I just want to uh, kind of bring this back to light because he uses the word gospel on two occasions in this text. And we looked at this really carefully in the first week of our series, but I just want to review because the gospel is so important that we know it and that we don't try to add anything to it. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. So just as a review, we looked at this a few weeks ago, that the gospel is very simply the reality that you and I are sinners. We're marked by sin, kind of the original sin of Adam kind of carries into our flesh, And I hope that's not like new news for you. It's the reality, we're all marked by sin. And not only are we sinners, but then by product of that, we live in a world that is evil. I've shared with you, I think every week up here, just these headlines that, frankly, I don't even know what surprises me anymore. Um, I saw another headline this week, and I'll I'll pick on my own, I'll pick on pastors. It was a a pastor that had kind of come to light that he was living this very duplicitous life. He was a preacher on Sundays, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news. And turns out that online, he was leading a complete uh, other life as a curvy transgender woman. And when it initially came out, he denied it. He said that he had been part of an internet hack and scandal And then, as more truth came out, he had to walk it back, and this pastor had to get up and say, Well, what I do in my private life has no bearing on what I do in my public life. And I got to tell you, I, I think that that is absolutely the wrong way and the way in which we're not called to live. Our lives should be the same. Our public and our private life need to reconcile. We live in a world where there's a lot of compromising, and that would be evil in our world. Praise God, fortunately, in the gospel there is rescue, and that rescue is in Jesus Christ and him alone, and when you've received that grace and that forgiveness, the only response is amen, to praise God, to worship God with the life that God's given you. He's been preaching the same message day in and day out for 14 years, and it has an effect on the people around him. In fact, it has such an effect that people want to be with Paul. Um, In fact, two of the guys are mentioned in this text. Barnabas... And Titus. Now, Barnabas is kind of an interesting guy. Uh, He actually became a follower of Jesus before Paul. You can read about it in Acts. uh, He actually was compelled by this message of Jesus, had a piece of property, sold it, took all the money, all the proceeds, and gave it to the church. That's how you're introduced to Barnabas. His name means that he's an encourager. And an encourager is someone that actually puts courage in the people around them. And I love this. I, I don't know about you. Maybe I'll just kind of go first in this, but I really like to surround myself with encouragers. Uh, far better than surrounding yourself with critics, right? Like it just kind of goes without saying. And uh, I love that. People who are encouraging, they just sort of fuel you. Um, yesterday, I had, uh, I had kind of a fun day. I did a mountain bike race up in Traverse City. I love riding my mountain bike in the woods. Kind of brings out I don't know, the inner 12-year-old in you, right? Like, you know, you know, it's just such a kid moment. Like, I rode my bike up a really big hill, and then I went down the hill really fast. Like, it's sort of a 12-year-old thing to do, and I'm trying to stay young. So I'm, I'm doing this race, and this guy comes up next to me, and he, he kind of looks at me, and he says, great job, as he goes in front of me. And I'm thinking to myself, I should be saying great job to you. You just passed me. And I just noticed this guy was just kind of a hoot the whole ride. Like I tried to stay with him because we'd be going up a hill and he'd say, whoa, that's hard. We can do it, you know. And then I'm kind of like, all right, I can do it because this guy says I can. And going down the hill, he's like, "Woohoo!" you know, just hooting and hollering. And every person we would pass, I started calling him the great job guy because he'd just pass somebody. and say, great job, you in the white, great job, hey, blue, great job. I'm like... This guy is infectious. Like, I just love riding with him for as long as I could. Then he was a lot faster, so I couldn't keep up with him. But I think Barnabas is a great job guy. You know, just a great job guy, just always looking to put courage in the people around him. And I think he did that for Paul on many occasions. Titus is another guy impacted by the gospel. Um, Likely, Titus is younger, maybe in his 20s, some scholars believe, and he gets saved because of the preaching of Paul. So Titus kind of has this relationship with Paul as his pastor and it really turns his life around for him. You got to kind of notice in this text that we're talking about defending the gospel, but it is never a solo project. In fact, this is just sort of oozing with community in the right way. In fact, I was thinking about this, I was thinking how how Paul without community could really just be defending the gospel for his own gain, right? I mean, he could be like, I'm going to defend the gospel because it makes me look really good, right? And I'm this big force in the world because I've got all these credentials. And it's not like that at all for Paul. He's gathering this community. And it's not just community for the sake of, oh, I've got... I've got some people around me. Hey, we work together or we work out together. It's not, oh, we've got this same hobby called the gospel, right? And we're defending it as a hobby, kind of like we're getting the band back together, right? It's not that. In fact, what it really shows is there's a change in the life of the people around you when you defend the gospel. And that brings me to my first point that defending the gospel brings freedom, it doesn't create rules, it actually creates freedom. And especially in this story, for that second gentleman mentioned, Titus. Let me read this very strange verse that I read. Let me read it again. Verse 3, it says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, you got to kind of read between the lines here because, I mean, think about it. Titus, 20, 25-year-old young man, um, and these spies in the church had come along and said, hey, well, if Titus really is a follower of Jesus, well, then he'll have this little surgery too, right? Like, he'll undergo, not as a baby, but as a full-grown man, circumcision. And now you get what Paul says, right? I mean, Titus is like, not compelled, right? Like, I'm not interested in having that surgery, right? Like, not interested at all. I mean, can you imagine that? That was happening in this church, And Paul takes this really strong stance. He delivers this knockout punch that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Don't add tradition. Don't add culture. In fact, I love the way he ends this section. I think this is going to be my new life verse. He says, we did not give in to them, not for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I think when you read this, you have to have this appreciation for the fact that Paul got in the ring. And he defended the gospel as the gospel alone. It's not gospel plus anything. And the church has this real moment of clarity because the gospel gets back to what it is just the simple message that you are a sinner in an evil world, and Jesus is your only rescue, and your life should be committed to worshiping him. And the church has this. In fact, um, this next verse, verse nine, is kind of interesting. It talks about James, who's the brother of Jesus. Cephas, every time you see Cephas, think Peter, because that's what his name is, and we'll talk about him. And John, John is also one of the disciples. Jesus called him his beloved. Um, It says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You would say that at this point in the early church, there is, for the very first time, unity. And with the unity comes this strategic evangelism. Notice that. It says, it says, we'll go to the Gentiles. That's what Paul is specifically gifted with his Roman background. And James, Cephas, and John, the church in Jerusalem, um, they would go to the Jews, circumcised people. And we have, for the very first time, this message extending and reaching out to the world, and all because Paul was willing to take his shot in the ring and deliver this punch. Now, I'd love to tell you at this point, halfway through chapter two, that they lived happily ever after, but they did not. In fact, it seems like just a few years later, it's just sort of like this rinse and repeat. In fact, um, you read these next words and it's so odd the way in which the next issue, the next fight, the next stepping in the ring has to happen for Paul. Dropping down to verse 11. And this is Paul again. He says, Now you read this and you're like, wait a minute. I mean, just a couple of verses before, weren't they extending this right hand of fellowship and saying, go team, you go one direction, we'll go the other, all for the praise and glory of Jesus. And it's like, new day, new issue. Now the location has changed. They're not in Jerusalem. That would have been the headquarters of the early church. But Antioch is also significant. In fact, in the book of Acts, it says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. And Antioch became kind of the southern force of Christianity and primarily among these Gentiles. And you can see, I mean, Paul is not pulling his punches. Uh, one author says that this is what it looks like when Paul's soul is set on fire. It says when he saw Cephas in Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face. And again, new day, new issue. This time it's not circumcision and having to defend against that addition to the gospel, but it's food regulations. And he has to call out Cephas, Peter in this case. Now, it's interesting to think about Peter in this moment because you actually probably know a lot about Peter, and you might not even realize it. Um, Peter is one of uh, the original followers of Jesus, and he has a lot of experiences with Jesus in the New Testament throughout the gospels. In fact, Peter is an amazing guy, and in one case, Jesus kind of asks his disciples, hey, who do people say? What's word on the street? What do people think about me? And the disciples kind of one after the other all got it wrong. Like one said, well, some people think you're Elijah. Oh, that guy's dead, actually, right? And some people think you're Moses. Hey, that's another dead guy. And then Peter chimes in, and he says, no, you are the Christ. And Jesus is like, bingo, you nailed it, Peter. And on your testimony, I will build the church. And Peter has these moments of just brilliant clarity. In fact, in the early church, after Jesus is ascended, Peter gives the very first sermon and 5,000 people give their life to Jesus. Amazing. But he also has what I would call kind of this Achilles heel in his faith. And truth be told, we all have something that sort of trips us up. And you see it here in the text, but I want to remind you of another story. You might know of one other story with Peter. And it's when he's in the boat in the middle of the night with all of his disciple friends, And they're getting tossed around, and he's afraid. He's scared. All of them are. And Jesus comes walking to him on the storm. And Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, call to me. And Peter steps out of the boat. And he begins to walk on water. And whatever you think of Peter, he's done something that I've never done. I don't know if any of you have walked on water before. But for a split second, he's a water walker. Until he looks at the waves. And then the text tells us that in fear, he began to sink. And we see that again in this text. I believe fear is what drags him down. It says here in verse 12 in Galatians that he used to associate with the Gentiles, but then he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was, and there it is, afraid. Fear gripped him, now not fear physically for his life, but the fear of what other people, what this group known as the circumcision group, the same group that wanted Titus to be circumcised, now had these rules that they wanted Peter to follow around food regulations. Again, in that day, food was a really big thing. Uh, Jews felt that, they, that any uh, food that came from the hoof was unclean, so no pork, no bacon. And they've already had this agreement that the gospel doesn't include food regulations. But Peter, for some reason, still feared these, these men, this circumcision group, and it kind of would have worked like, I don't know, middle school lunchroom tables, right? Like, you know, you got kind of the cool kid table, and then you got the not-so-cool kid table. And at the cool kid table sat all of the Jewish high-powered people. And if they weren't around, Peter felt great. I can go sit with my Gentile friends. But as soon as they were around, he'd feel like he'd get sucked back into their thinking. Ah, I got to please them. And it was so bad, his people-pleasing was so bad that it actually led barnabas astray as well it's just flat out hypocrisy and paul calls him out he says you're a jew and yet you live like a gentile and then you force gentiles to live like a jew and he has to oppose him directly to his face here's the deal when it comes to defending the gospel and in this case defending the gospel like inside of the church and the reality is that we'll always have disagreements disagreements though are an opportunity to come back to the gospel the simplicity of the gospel. Not tradition, not your way of thinking, not your secret agenda that you're hoping to get other people to buy into, but disagreements are an opportunity for both parties to come back to just the beauty and the wholeness of the gospel. In fact, I, I got to really just think in this case that when Paul had to oppose Peter to his face, that he did it privately at first, right? Right? And that's what I would encourage us to do because Jesus teaches very clearly in Matthew 18 that if you have an issue with your brother or with your sister, that you're to go to them privately, have a conversation, one-on-one. And if that doesn't work, if that doesn't uh, allow there to be unity and reconciliation, then it says in Matthew 18, bring someone else along. And then finally, if that still doesn't bring about unity, then, well, you need more help. And so, you know, bring along the church. Bring along other people into this conversation. I believe that's what Paul models for us here in this situation. And he has great courage to step in the ring again and to defend this gospel, to bring about this unity for the church. And again, this is courage. Courage isn't just uh, the absence of fear. It's actually the presence of faith. So how about for you and for me? In fact, I read this story and I just see how easily it is for any person to get sucked back into false thinking false beliefs tradition culture a gospel that isn't the pure message of Jesus and that's why i think we need this message as a church in fact without you know going through this in a lengthy way we could all probably say if not for ourselves we probably all know someone who's been kind of sucked away pulled back into the world, maybe away from the church, maybe away from the gospel. I mean, come on, let's just be honest, right? I mean, here, in this room, let's just be honest. There's probably some people that you know that, well, they're just not going to church. And not the line, well, I'm not going to this church, I'm going to that church, because I hear that a lot, and then I find out later that, well, they're actually not going to any church. And I'll tell you, that's why we need each other. I mean, who in your circle, in the people around you, may have been just sucked back into the world. And God is saying, like Paul, defending the gospel is your love and your care for them, for the agreement of them with the gospel message of Jesus. Who do you maybe need to have just a relational conversation with about this gospel? Maybe in other ways, maybe you've been more like Peter. Maybe you've been separated. Maybe you've separated yourself from some people because, well, i don 't agree with that tradition i don 't follow that way i don 't worship that way that 's not the song I like and and you 've separated yourself and you're hearing this message and defending the gospel is this requirement of unity together maybe it's fear maybe you're here this morning and and you really resonate with you see things in the world and they're evil and, and maybe they're they're evil or they're just against this Christian worldview and you want to speak out against policies that you see in our world or in government or in the way marriage is portrayed and you think well I don't know I have a lot of fear what are people going to think of me I want to remind you uh, as Pastor Mike said a couple weeks ago and Justin this morning um, we want we want to put courage into you and that's why we're doing this engaging culture series the one we did in October uh, was a huge success the one coming up this Tuesday I would just remind you don't miss this event Um, Dave Chafee, really good friend of mine, he is well-equipped and basically called, in my opinion, to, to talk on this subject, and especially this one. He wants to equip our church in this area of family and the importance of promoting and protecting God's plan for society. So, as Justin said, don't miss that event. Sign up, but be here Tuesday at 6.30 for that event. Last verse I want to leave you with, and it's kind of an anthem You can't really read Galatians 2 without reading this anthem at the very end of the chapter. Notice what Paul says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the example of how we're to live. Or maybe better, this is the example of how we're to die. I mean, you see how he says this? Three times he says, I've been crucified, I no longer live, Christ lives in me. He's saying that for every follower of Jesus, there's an opportunity to die to yourselves and to really take the pure message of the gospel into the places where it's needed most. I think another way of saying this is the greatest defense of the gospel is your life, how you live, authentically, in real life to the people that God has placed around you. Let me just ask you this morning, is that true for you? Have you been crucified? Have you died? Is it Christ that lives in you in the way in which you can be an example of Jesus Christ to the world around you? We want you to, to be equipped. We want to put courage in you as a church. We want to encourage you every day to, to spend time with God, to, to pray and to read his word. But ultimately, we do that so that we can take the gospel truth into all of the places where God needs it so much, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in our homes. If you would pray with me, please. God, I thank you for the privilege of the gospel. We are privileged people that we've heard this news and we've had an opportunity in our freedom to change. And God, I pray that in every heart and in every life, that decision has been made crystal clear to follow you as their savior from this day forward. But God, this morning, I also feel the heaviness of not just privilege, but of responsibility to take this gospel. And if it's to remain pure and beautiful and unspoiled to our world, then we have to defend it. And so God, I just want to pray as a community that you would place courage inside of each one of us. And I don't know what that means to every person individually, God, but I know you do. And so I'm asking that you would do that. Would you fill us up with all the courage that you so generously supply so that we can take this message of love into the streets, Lord? God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for uh, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We want to sing to you now with hearts that are full of thanksgiving. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.